Good to see you guys here. If you are a longtime member or a uh, brand new visitor, I, I know this is moving too fast. You know, I got to slow down. But I feel like your church family, and I know that that's a little ridiculous because maybe we just met, or maybe you don't know me that well, or maybe you don't even like me. But I, I, I'm I'm who you got. Uh, before we start the the message this morning, I just wanted to point out, or not point out, but I just wanted to remind our church of of two very important things. Number one is this. Um, so the church family, the goal, uh, one of the, 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 the values of being church family, I mean, there's just millions, right? You could list the benefits all day long. But one of the values of just being church family is that we have this, this kind of connection and this support system. And so one of the things the church does, you may not be aware, and I think it's important that you know, is we have what's called a benevolence fund, which means that when people in our church family are, are struggling or hurting uh, or need financial help, that, that we as church leaders you know, make a decision to try to help them, if possible, um, out of that benevolence fund. So when you give money to, in the offering, a portion of that money actually goes to, to accomplish this, these needs. So it's not all just, you know, uh, paying a salary for me or keeping the lights on. It's trying to make sure that we take care of the needs of, of the people around us in our church family and, and to some degree beyond as well. So I want you to know that. I want you to be aware of that. When you give, it's going to, to many different things. Um, I, I want you to also know, and I think this is really valuable uh, for our church family to know, that there is one of uh, the families in, in our, in our uh, fellowship, in our brotherhood, uh, that is struggling right now. Some of you may have heard about the Caputo family. Um, Kim, who is the mother, has been diagnosed with cancer, thyroid cancer, is going through treatment for that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, they took their daughter in for something. They found out that she had a tumor that was cancerous as well. This family has been beat down by circumstances in life. And I think it's valuable for us as a church family for, for, to surround them with prayer. And so even if you don't know the Caputo family, if you would make just a little note this week to pray for the Caputos. Uh, Bianca is the one with cancer, has been diagnosed with cancer. And then Kim is the mother, Gino's the father, and then uh, Laughlin's the son, so a family of four. A lot of you do know them, but I just want you to be praying for the Caputo family. But also, I want you to know that if, uh, if you are... Uh, you know, if, if you want part of what you give to the church to go to that benevolence fund that is distributed to different people who have needs, we want you to, to be able to do that. We want you to be able to be a part of that. doesn't mean that what you give will directly go to them. I don't want you to think that. Uh, but it's important for us to know that the church family is taking care of their own. And that's one of the things that I, I think it's valuable for us to know as well. So if you want a p- portion of what you offer to the church to go to that, make sure you designate that in the memo. If you have questions about that and how that works and what that looks like, make sure you talk to Phil or Todd. If you don't know who Phil or Todd are, just wander around the building yelling Phil and Todd, and they'll come find you. Um, but it's also important to know that as a church family, if you are in need or you, if you have needs, let us know. We can't serve everybody. We can't pay for everything. We certainly don't think that we can, but we want to know where people are hurting, and we want to do uh, what we can do. So if you have needs, then just, just be sure to let us know. We're, we're a church family. The Caputos are part of our church family, uh, and we want to we love and support them as much as possible. All right. Done. Let's get started. All right. Keep in prayer for the Caputos. You remember, uh, probably it's been three, four months ago, where we started this initiative. It was at the beginning of the year. If you weren't here, you don't remember this. I'll remind you. 
Uh, we called it our blank space. We did a whole sermon series, and it was called Blank Space. And the idea was is that God has, has given you a unique opportunity in the life of someone to try to draw them to Christ. There's a name that you know that maybe nobody else does or nobody else has a relationship with. Uh, someone that you know that God has given you an opportunity to draw them closer to Christ. So we wanted you to be praying for that person. We wanted you to be thinking. We wanted you to be talking to that person. We wanted you to be having conversations with that person. We wanted you to be doing everything that you could to draw that person a little bit closer to Christ. So that was your goal. You remember the, the, we had these postcards that we gave out, and you had your little blank space that you wrote on there? I'm going to do something I should not do. Preachers should not do this because it really puts them out there, and it can go really badly. This can backfire. How many of you, would you please raise your hand if you have a blank space, a name in a blank space that you thought of, wrote down, or working on? All right. We're, we're, yeah, this is why you should not do that, because we got 50%. All right. 100% folks, come on. Those of you that don't have a blank space, today's the day. And the idea is, is that you think of someone, someone you work with, someone you're related to, someone you don't like, someone you love, whoever it is that you can be used by God to draw them closer to Christ. They're your blank space. They're this name that, that God is going to be using you this year. The only way... The church is going to grow is if God is drawing people to Christ. And the way he does that, whether you like this or not, is through you. He wants to use you to draw those people to himself. I know that sounds crazy. Now, I've been overwhelmed by some of the people that have been doing an incredible job of this. They talk about our life group. Our small group talks about our blank spaces all the time. Pray for my blank space. And I know it's weird to say blank space when you're talking about a person, a human being, but pray for my blank space. I'm talking to, I had a conversation with them the other day. So I've been really encouraged by what some people have, have done with regard to blank spaces. But we kind of want to dip into that idea a little bit again as we talk about what we've been talking about last week, this week, and then the next week as well. Um, we are going to talk about, really largely, broadly, it's a church word, and I know it's a word that's maybe going to cause some of you to break out in the cold sweats, but it's a word called evangelism. Evangelism. Now, this is not a word that a lot of people like, and I'm going to define it here in a second, but this word evangelism is not a word you use very often, but everybody does it, whether they're Christians or not. Every time you post on a social media, you're kind of evangelizing because you're telling somebody about something that you think is important to you or, or complaining about something that you think is important to you. We all are like putting, kind of putting ourselves out there to some degree to let people know what's going on in our lives. Some of you do that more than others. Uh, I, I kind of tend to be a little bit secretive on, on social media. I like kind of come in and snipe and say like every once in a while. But I don't put a ton of, I don't like weigh in, like life decisions, tell me what to do. But it's evangelism. How many of you know what Instagram is? That's evangelism. Look what I had for breakfast. Go try out this burrito breakfast place. It's delicious. It's evangelism. We all do that. We all do that in a variety of uh, areas in our lives. It's, it's evangelism. It's telling people what we think about something. And evangelism is broadly, we think about evangelism as proclaiming, as proclaiming. So we got this idea. So we're proclaiming something. Now, for Christians, we're proclaiming Christ, right? We're telling people about Christ. So when we think about evangelism, this is why we get nervous, because we think about proclaiming. I know it's kind of a weird word, but we're going to use it this morning. We think about proclaiming, and what we're talking about is like that moment in a conversation where we've kind of got to redirect the conversation and start talking about Jesus. This is, this is a little bit of a, a caricature, but this is, this is what we think about when we think about evangelism. 
there's a little bit of a lull in, in the conversation, and then we like, kind of clear our throats and, <clears throat> um, hey, do you mind if I speak to you a moment about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And the person is like, well, what are they going to do, right? Yes, I do mind in the conversation. Or you say something like, uh, you know, you get a little nervous. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, tremor in your voice. Uh, it's, you know, have you ever thought about if you died today, where you would spend eternity? You know, that's, that's what we think about when we think about evangelism. This, this moment in a conversation or a relationship where we redirect it, where we've got to, like, proclaim Jesus somehow. And that is why most of us do not do it. Because it feels awkward. It seems weird. It's a strange thing to do to kind of come out of left field and be like, bam, let's talk about Jesus now. Like, wait a second. And, and some people do it in very awkward ways, and it makes this proclamation thing kind of difficult. But that's why a lot of us struggle with it, because we think it's this proclaiming, and we got to tell people about Jesus. What's well, true, right? Evangelism should be telling people about Jesus, right? But the problem is, is if we limit it to that idea, then we're missing out on the big picture. And then this is why I think this is so important. When we limit evangelism to just this idea of proclamation, we're missing out on this much bigger picture of what it really is. Bear with me. It's kind of like Minnesota. So if, you, uh, if you're not from here and you moved here, you can sympathize with this. But every once in a while you'll talk with someone from south of Mason-Dixon. And when they hear that you're from Minnesota, what is the first thing that comes up? It's cold. That's all they know about Minnesota. It's cold. And you're like, there's so much more to our state than the temperature. Come on. Minnesota is beautiful. There's 10,000 lakes. There's more than 10,000 lakes. There's all these things that you can do. We have the Mall of America. We have the Twins. We have the Vikings. We have, all, we have a bunch of Fortune 500 companies. There's so much more to Minnesota. And then when they're talking, they're like, oh, hey, uh, yeah, I got this is a true story. It was probably September I was talking with somebody from, I don't know, Alabama, Georgia, someplace like that. And they're like, how much snow do you have on the ground? And I hung up on them. I was just like, no, that's not true. But I was just like, come on, you know, we're so much more than cold weather. In fact, Minnesota is one of the few places you can go in the Union where right now it is 48 degrees. And we will walk out this door feeling like, woo, it's nice out. Nowhere else. In the South, man, they are buried under layers of blankets and they've got their heavy coats and they've got the fireplace going and the things are shut down if it's 48 degrees. Minnesota is great, right? If you limit your understanding of Minnesota to the cold, you miss out on so many good things. If we limit our understanding of evangelism to just this one idea of proclaiming, we're missing out on the big picture and it's no wonder we're terrified of what evangelism is and what it means and what, it, what, what, what we do. So, let's uh, broaden our idea of evangelism. And I want you to take your Bibles, because I want to say this. I want to say evangelism is not proclaiming, or maybe more accurately, not just proclaiming. It's not figuring out just the right thing to say or how to say it. It's much bigger. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I wrote uh, 1 Corinthians 19 up there because I inverted the numbers. Go 919. I know it's hard to believe. I'm not perfect, but I like to give you reminders every once in a while. 1 Corinthians 919. 
Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, you've, you've read that verse before, right? You know, you've heard that verse. Go back to that verse for a second. That verse is, is pretty radical. Though I am free, Jordan talked about this last week, I have the rights of an American citizen. I can free speech. I can bear arms. No right, search and seizure. I have the right not to, to, uh, to what's the Fifth Amendment? I don't have to testify against myself. I, I have the right to not drink. I have the right to drink. You know, all the prohibitions and then the non-prohibitions. I have the right to do all these things and Jordan taught us last week that there are going to become moments in our lives where we have to give up those rights and others, among others, to do what God wants us to do. And Paul says, I am free, but I have made myself a slave. I want you to think about that for a second, church. This is how he viewed himself. I am free, but I have made myself a slave. I don't belong to anybody. But I've decided in my mind that I'm going to consider myself, in relationship to other people, a slave that I can win as many people as possible. That I can have a relationship in a way that draws as many people as possible to Christ. That is pretty radical. And that is where Paul starts. That is wild. And that is a place I don't think most of us get very often. Because as soon as our freedom come into conflict with somebody else's freedoms or desires or choices or, or their rights, we, kinda, we have a real struggle with that. And Jordan tried to help us walk away from that a little bit last week. But I'm a slave. And even though, I, I, even though I'm free, I consider myself a slave. Now go to the next verse. This is what it looks like. He says, if I'm around the Jewish people, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. If I'm around somebody that's under the law, I became like someone who's under the law, though I am myself not under the law. I did things that related to these people that lived in certain ways so that I could win those that are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. The law of love. So as to win those not having the law. He says in verse 22, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all possible means I may save some. Church, if we just adopted that last last part of that verse, that part in yellow, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. What would that transform about our church? I I think within weeks, months, we'd be blowing out the walls here. If we took that idea seriously, I'd become all things. Now, what does that mean, though? That's the problem. Because we read a verse like that, and you're like, what are you talking about? How do we do that? So I think we got this idea of proclaim, right? I have to tell people about Jesus, and we get that, and that's the part that makes us nervous. But the part about evangelism that I don't think we fully grasp, we fully realize, is what Paul's talking about here. Not only is evangelism proclaiming, but evangelism is also identifying with, becoming like. It's also this, this, this opportunity where I have, I think it might be on the next slide, I don't know for sure. It's this opportunity where I have to, to interact with someone in a way that breaks down barriers between myself and them. I have to tell them about Jesus, sure. But Paul says it's not just that proclamation. It's not just standing on a street corner preaching because when I do that, I have not identified with them. That's not a way that somebody wants to be talked to or evangelized to or yelled at. I both have to proclaim and I have to identify. And we have to, we have to understand what this idea is getting at. Let me give you an example and we'll dig a little bit deeper. So uh, church here, this church here has been 
sending mission teams every summer down to the Ciudad de Angeles Children's Home in Cozumel, Mexico. Every summer in June, we go down there and we, we play with kids, we teach VBS, we, we sing songs, we do activities, we work, all kinds of things. You'll be hearing about a lot more of that this summer. We've been going down there, so I think this is uh, our ninth year, or will be our ninth year. It's, it's quite a while. Um, but I, when we first were going down, we were getting ready to... to, to to put together Bible lessons and songs and our plans as we were going down there. And there's, a, there's one individual that we coordinate all of this stuff with. So we'll send him, here's our schedule, here's our teaching plans, what do you think? And he makes sure it looks okay. And I was sending stuff down and he wrote me an email back one time and he says, hey, I just want you to know, um, I want you to be sure as you're, as you're planning to do the Bible studies in Spanish. Now these are Spanish-speaking kids, elementary kids, age kids, and he's telling me we need to do the Bible studies in Spanish. And I thought, I, so I had to ask him. I was like, we're going to Mexico. They speak Spanish. These are little kids. Why would you have to specify that we have to teach Spanish-speaking kids in Spanish? Like, what, are there people that don't get that? You know, are, are there people that, I didn't say this, but are there people that are that dumb? Well, here's what's Funny? Crazy? Yes. They have had quite a few people go down there and teach the Spanish-speaking elementary-age kids in English. And so these kids are bored. They don't understand what's going on. They have no clue about the Bible lessons. And I, don't, I wonder, are these groups, these teachers that are going down there just like talking to each other after the lesson saying, I don't know, I just don't think the kids are getting it. I don't think they're connecting. I'm just... Maybe they're not spiritually minded enough, you know. I don't know. If they really wanted to know the Bible lessons, then they would really, they would really try hard. They would really, they would learn English if they really wanted to know about the Bible, right? I mean, are these, are these teams thinking that? Why in the world would someone try to teach someone a Bible lesson in a language that they don't understand? Why would someone do that? Because they're crazy, I don't know, Right? I don't know, because there's a lot of reasons. But I thought it was, it was unbelievable that he had to specify, oh, by the way, to Spanish-speaking kids, you need to speak Spanish. Now, I don't speak Spanish, so we have to take down people who speak Spanish for us and who can translate for us. But I was like, that, that is unbelievable. But that's the exact same problem that Paul's talking about in this passage. That thinking like, behaving like, identifying with is really about removing roadblocks between myself and someone else. And not even really myself and someone else, between someone else and Jesus. It's about identifying and removing roadblocks between someone else and Jesus. There's this pivotal moment in the early church. Um, right at the beginning of like the, where the church was trying to figure things out, where they run into this exact problem. And this story fascinates me for a variety of reasons. But it's amazing to think about how they navigated this idea. Because they, up to this point, all the Christians had been Hebrew people. So all their customs and their laws and their language and everything was kind of just this product deal. And when they would talk to other Hebrew people about Jesus, you just kind of drew in some of their traditions and their history and the language. And it all just kind of became one part of this big, this big package. Well, Paul and Barnabas... Boy, they really broke the mold, and they started to talk to people who weren't Hebrew, and they started telling these non-Hebrew people about Jesus. Well, that's when you start getting your, your original church problems. I want you to see this passage in, in Acts chapter 15, 
really starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea, that would have been where all the Hebrew Christians were, to Antioch, which is where the the non-Hebrew Christians were. And they were teaching those believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. I just want to give you fair warning. We're going to get into a little something here, just so you know. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Just imagine what evangelism was like for these people. So, yeah, we've, uh, we've talked about Jesus. Check. That's good. Yeah. Um, baptism. Yeah, we've covered that. Uh, anything else? Oh, yeah. There's this surgery... If you really want to please God, you got to get this surgery. Oh, okay, what kind of surgery is it? Well, it uh, involves a scalpel. Oh, boy, yeah. Where does it involve the scalpel, you know? And if you're talking to the ladies, oh, no big deal. If you're talking to the guys, I would guess that the wives going to church on Sunday morning would be like, Hey, uh, hubby, do you want to come to church with me? No, I do not. I've heard a little bit about what it takes to be a Christian there, and I am not interested. Thank you very much. The the new Christians class would be a lot of kids and ladies. It wouldn't be not a lot of not a lot of guys. I just can't even imagine like having that conversation about like, oh, by the way, also this surgery. So verse two, they were teaching this. Verse two says this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp, no pun intended, dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, right? So this is, there's some guys who saying, nope, nope, you have to have the surgery. Now it seems insane to us, but this is what, this is what they were going with. You have to have the surgery to become a, a, a Christian. The Old Testament says so. God expected it in the Bible. God told it to Moses. We've been doing it for thousands of years. It's at this point tradition. It's our preference. It's the way that we're going to do things. You have to do it. And Paul and Barnabas were like, You have no idea. There is no way we can go around talking to people, telling them they have to do this surgery in order to become Christians. There's absolutely no way. It's not going to happen. People aren't going to come to Christ. And and for a variety of reasons, not not just to mention that it's theologically unsound, but there's no way. And so Paul and Barnabas are arguing, and they're finally like, we got to ask somebody. And so this is like the very first church meeting. And this really determines the future direction of the church. I mean, if they had gone one way, I think the church would probably have been quite a bit smaller, if not kind of died out altogether. So they go up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is where the apostles are. Jerusalem is like, you know, the, the headquarters, so to speak. It's where all the guys who had been with Jesus, who had known Jesus, who talked to Jesus, they want to get an idea of, from these people. So what does God really think? Surgery? No surgery. What do we, what's the bottom line here? And you've got to understand, this was an important issue. For us, we're just like, that's ridiculous. This was an important fundamental issue to them. My grandfather taught me I had to be circumcised. My father taught me I had to be circumcised. You can't come along and say that this doesn't matter now. And Paul and Barnabas were like, listen, God is opening up this truth to everybody. He's fulfilled the law through Jesus. You don't have to require circumcision anymore. It's not circ... Some of you kids are like, what circumcision? Well, I've got a picture. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I really don't. It's just one of those things you're going to hear at church, and eventually you're going to be like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we don't do that. 
So Paul isn't having it. He's standing up for the people that he's working with. They're making a, there's this big debate going on. And if you really want to get into it, it's, it, it would be good. Read verses 3 through 18. It's this record of the debate. Paul spoke. Peter spoke. Of course, the people that were opposed to it spoke. They got up and they defended. And I'm sure they very eloquently defended their position. There's this huge argument. Do we continue to push what had been an expectation of God? Or do we drop it because it looks like maybe this isn't what God is really all about and God's doing something on a bigger scale? What, what do we do? So finally, at the end of this argument, at the end of this debate, this guy named James gets up. Now James, uh, there's a lot of questions about who he is. He seems like he's probably the brother of Jesus. May not have been, but very likely the brother of Jesus. And it doesn't say anything about him in this debate. He's just one of those guys that's sitting in the background. Have you ever seen like a, like a group of people kind of arguing and there's just that wise guy sitting, wise person, wise man, sitting in the background. And then when they get up and they speak, everybody stops and listens because they've really thought about it and they really kind of know what they're saying. And James seems like he's one of those guys. So James gets up and he says this in verse 19. And I love this. I wish this were our motto. I wish this were our theme. I wish we could do everything we did through the lens of this verse. He says in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, he says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now that is easy to say amen when you're talking about circumcision because it's not really a debate for us. But I tell you what, church, we could put some other topics in there that would make us nervous that we'd find ourselves on the wrong side of this debate. How, how true is that verse? What are the limits of this verse, of this idea Circumcision, was, it was a cherished belief. It was one of the distinguishing features between the Hebrew people and everybody else. This was a practice that made them feel closer to God. There was this backdrop of history and tradition. But for James, it came down to this stark realization that continuing, continuing to enforce something that was not a matter of salvation was going to be a roadblock. For non-believers. Continuing to enforce something that was not essential for salvation was going to be a roadblock for non-believers. Essentially, James is asking this question. He's asking, how deeply do we really care about their salvation? That's what he's asking. When our ability to, 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 to remove roadblocks and to identify them comes up with against something that we hold near and dear, that we care about, that matters to us. Now, some of you are like, well, where do you draw the line? Are you talking about throwing out doctrine? Are you talking about, no. Let's use some common sense here. Don't put words in my mouth. But where, what are we talking about? And if I articulated some of these ideas, I think we would get some people a little bit worried, a little bit worked up. But the question is, how deeply do you Really care about their salvation. Well, I'd do anything. I mean, whatever it needs. To, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever. Paul even wrote in Romans that he was willing to sacrifice his salvation if it could mean the salvation of somebody else. I don't know about that. I, that's pretty. That's a little. That's a little too far. I, I agree. It's too far. What are we willing to sacrifice? What about our preferences? What about our traditions? What about our likes and dislikes? Are we willing to be uncomfortable 
if it means drawing someone else to Christ. Oh, I don't know. I, uncomfortable? I don't know. Of course, right? Of course we would say yes. But it really comes down to those issues. I have a feeling if we came along and we said, hey, we think this tradition is uh, getting in the way of reaching non-believers, so we're going to change it up. I have a feeling people would have a little bit of a struggle with that. Um, every once in a while, we make little tweaks to like the bulletin or the order of worship on a Sunday morning. Not everybody, but you should hear the hue and cry. Like, what happened? How did you change the bulletin? We've been doing it that way for 15 years. You're like, well, we thought this would be a little bit better. Boy, if we run into those kinds of uh, conflicts about changing things like the bulletin or, you know what, here's the real big debate. You guys want to know, a little, little church insider stuff, peel back the curtain. We were talking a couple weeks ago, like, you know, this room, I, I like the way it's set up. You know, I get to preach to people over here and then I get to preach to people over here. And if you watch a video of me preaching, I get so much exercise. Like I log miles back and forth here. Jordan's a little different. He kind of had, he stays, you know, like here, you know, he's a little bit more, but I log miles. And so Jordan, you know, he says, I love the cross that's in the room. And he goes, I hate the fact that it's over on the side, right? And then Jordan's talked about like, what if we moved the room and we all faced the cross? Then, you know, we were preaching this way. Well, Jordan said that. And I was like, we can't do that. We've been doing it this way since I came here. We can't, you know, we can't change it now. Like, and if we did, if you walked in some Sunday morning and all the chairs were facing this way, some of you would be like, I don't even know what this church is anymore. I don't even think I can come here anymore. Imagine if we disrupt things so much changing those things. Like, what, what if it got into, you know, meddling a little bit bigger? Church, I want you to know. I want you to know that we care deeply about theology. We care deeply about Jesus. We care deeply about doctrine. We care deeply about doing what's right. I don't want you to feel like those things are somehow going to be in danger or sacrificed at the altar of church growth or drawing people to Jesus. Because I'll get to this in a second. But I want you to know we also care deeply about souls. We care deeply about salvation. That's, there are times where we have to make tough choices. What roadblocks am I letting stand in the way of someone else being brought to Jesus? What am I not even paying attention enough to to realize that it's a roadblock? If we're going to be honest about a- answering a question like that, we, 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 have to, we have to be pretty self-reflective. And we have to tackle this on multiple levels. We have to tackle this as a church, but we have to tackle this individually as well. Because we have to know that our consequences, our choices, uh, have bigger implications when we're trying to draw people to, uh, to God. I'm going to confess something this morning. It, it has been known to happen that I have occasionally, accidentally, committed traffic violations. I have even made fellow drivers on the road upset with me. On some occasions, these fellow drivers have even given me certain gestures <laughs> that our society considers impolite and uh, a way to express our anger, even rage. And I want to tell you, this is true. You can ask my wife. She hates this about me, I'm sure. Every time I make somebody mad and they honk or they, you know, give me one of those fingers, you know which one, I have the same response. I do the same thing. 
When they drive by, you know, have you ever had somebody, you, you know, you accidentally cut them off, and you're like, whoops, sorry, and they drive by, and they want you to know how mad they are, so they're looking over at you, like, giving you, like, giving you the, you know, the, the finger, right, the one. This is what I always do. <clears throat> I'm always driving along. I always put on a big smile, and as they drive by, I'm like, hey! <laughs> I always wave really big. This is true. I'm always, hey! And, and if they give me the finger, I always give them a thumbs up, like, oh. Now, couple reasons, couple reasons, couple reasons. First of all, I don't want to do something mean or ugly and then have the person that's driving up be someone from church, like, oh, it's Bill. Uh, hey, Bill, sorry about that. I didn't mean to cut you off. Bill would never do any angry gestures. Bill's the nicest guy. I don't want it to be somebody from church. I don't want it to be a visitor, you know, like you accidentally brought a visitor in and like, oh, it's a, I saw you last Sunday. Oh, that's the preacher, whatever. I don't want that. But secondly, and this is just a little bit insider confessional, I have to think that on some level it's got to be incredibly either confusing <laughs> or annoying to have someone just giving you a big smile like, hey, how's it, yeah, how's it going? Because maybe then they think that they know you even though you're not sure about this whole thing. So you showed me a finger, here's a thumb. This idea of being cautious about our actions with regard to evangelism is all over the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament talks about marriages, it talks about employment, it talks about parenting, all with relation to drawing people to Christ, helping people see Christ. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, this proclamation I get, we got to tell people about Jesus, this identification stuff, it sounds like pop psychology, it sounds like wishy-washy, I don't know. I want you to consider this one very important fact. That God, he thought identification with people was so important that God became a man to identify with us. We had a tough time figuring out God on the God level, but he became a man to identify with us. Am I identifying with my blank space or am I just proclaiming to them? And I want you to, I, I want to, I'm going to tell you a story and I want to leave you this, with this point. This is, both these things are valuable for evangelism, are vital for evangelism. Because this is true. If I neglect to proclaim, then I'm missing the point. Right? If I don't tell them about Jesus, then I'm missing the point. If I neglect to identify, then I'm missing the person. If I neglect to proclaim, then I'm missing the point. If I neglect to identify, then I'm missing the person. Uh, I heard this story uh, a long time ago, and it really resonated with me, and I want to share it with you as we close this morning. I spent a lot of time trying to track down the truth of this story. I hate telling you guys something that isn't true. My memory may be faulty, but I never misrepresent anything. Um, but this was a story from back in the, in the 70s, and it was kind of during the, the, the hippie movement. It was just at its height, and people were like, you know, showers were optional, I mean, once a week, once a month, you know, if that, right? And uh, right across from a college campus was kind of this stately legacy church. A lot of gray hairs in the church. Definitely a lot of suits. A lot of, you know, sharp creases in the pants. Everybody dressed very nice. And, And one Sunday morning, one of these hippies from the college campus wanders in. Doesn't realize this isn't a place for him. Wanders into this church building, and the building's relatively full. Church service has already started. People are singing, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what the expectations are at church. So he kind of wanders in, and he goes, can't find a seat. Starts walking down the middle aisle, like, come on, guy. Like, you know, just find a seat and get this awkwardness over with. You're in the wrong place already, but this is weird. Keeps wandering down, can't find a seat. Makes his way all, to the, uh, all the way to the front, can't find a seat. And so he just sits down on the floor. 
And everybody's watching this thinking like, well, how are we going to, like, how, just sitting on the floor. Like, if somebody did that, you're like, oh, we would never do that. If somebody was sitting on the floor right here, that would be a little distracting. There were some babies crying at the beginning of my sermon, and everybody's like, what's with the babies? You know, if somebody were sitting on the floor, you'd be a little distracted. And from the back, one of the ushers, he's also a deacon, very well-dressed, very elderly gentleman, walked with a cane, and he starts making his way up the middle aisle. And everybody's like, oh no, this awkward situation is about to get worse because the deacon's about to come up and he's going to tell him he's, so he can't sit there. And it's just, we're trying to sing and this is just everything, you can just see, it's a slow-moving train wreck, right? The deacon making his way forward. And everybody in the audience is just like, oh man, this is going to be one of those Sundays we talk about over lunch. Remember that Sunday, the crazy hippie came in? Oh yeah, it was terrible, you know. And nobody wanted to cat, you know, catch the deacon, cut him off at the pass and say, no, just leave him. We'll just get through it. It'll be fine. Nobody wanted to do that. And so they just watched this whole scenario unfold. The deacon gets closer. Deacon gets closer. And finally gets all the way up to the front where this hippie's sitting on the floor. Deacon leans his cane over against one of the pews and he leans over and then he does something nobody expects. And he sits down on the ground so that he can worship with this person that he doesn't know so that he can identify with to remove a roadblock so that this, this person who probably doesn't feel welcome or doesn't understand the, 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 the legacy, the, the, the traditions of this church can feel welcome so he won't have to worship alone. That is identification. That is removing roadblocks. That is evangelism. That is becoming all things to all men. So let's make up our minds to remove roadblocks this week, church. I want you to think about your blank spaces. I want you to think about your coworkers. I want you to think about the people around you. I want you to think about visitors to churches on Sunday. And I want you to remove roadblocks for those people so that we can be used by God to draw people to himself. We're going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask Leon if you would come up and close us out. Leon.